Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. It's radio. It's Thursday morning. I got some energy for this one, boss, man. How are you doing? Doing good. New Year's are coming. Well, if you're looking to open your mind to some new ideas, certainly that's what today's conversation was all about for me, Ian. It was a Saturday. I had an all-day drive across Texas, and there's not a lot of entertaining things to look at when you're driving across Texas. There's not many places to stop that aren't dangerous. (laughs) Like you got to keep moving. And so I needed a book. I thought, I'm going to use this opportunity. I'm doing my year-end finances. I want to figure out how to invest better in 2022. So I bought a bunch of books about investing. And one of them was called Crypto Asset Investing in the Age of Autonomy. Now, it had some good reviews and had a title about the topic I was interested in. Frankly, I, I didn't expect much, you know, because, you know, crypto is a meme right now. It's popular. And so people are going to start writing books and who knows how good they are. So anyway, I fired up the audible.com and started cruising across the state. And I just didn't turn it off the whole time. I was, even when I got home, I finished the book. And it really, I think it's fair to say that I was riveted for this eight hour journey. So the author is Jake Ryan. He is the chief investment officer at a crypto hedge fund called Tradecraft Capital. Best part is, I get home, he's based right here in Austin. So just across town, I called him up and he was willing to come on the pod. So there was a bunch of things that leapt out at me, Ian. Um, Not only uh, part one of his book, which is sort of a historical overview of how we got to this moment in monetary policy and how cryptocurrencies are situated in the history. I think that Jake presents is very, very compelling, but also he gets down to cheddar in this book. He talks about how to construct a portfolio, right? He doesn't just give vague principles. And I really appreciate that. So let's just jump right into it, Ian. A bunch of things that leapt out to me about this book and uh, started off by asking Jake, you know, where his ideas come from. I started, I got a degree in computer science. I have a specialization in artificial intelligence, was one of the first to use artificial neural networks for cybersecurity. And this is back kind of research work in the 90s. And I was a software engineer for the first, you know, two decades of my career. Um, and But I was always, I always had a passion for investing. You know, I bought my first stock at 15, bought my first ETF at like 18. I was doing options trading at 22. Um, you know, and then doing the venture capital later in my career in the 2014, 15 timeframe. Uh, and I just saw a career switch for me. So crypto was just perfect because it was at the intersection of economics, investing, technology, investing, early stage investing, uh, and technology. And if you have, if you really know those three, well, crypto is just at that perfect intersection. And I was like, I think I can make a difference. I think I can write software and build systems and educate people enough that I, I'm going to start a hedge fund. One of the theses of your books is you're like, look, 
you know, short-term investing is, and by short-term, say 10-year timeframes, is really based on credit cycles. And, but long-term investing is based on innovation cycles. Can you describe the difference for us? Yeah, I would say, yeah. So many things with human behavior, there are cycles. There is a, a credit cycle. There's a, an economic cycle. Uh, shortwave cycles are, are driven by credit. Those five or 10 years, typically you're seeing uh, central banks increase or decrease interest rates. And then that's having an effect on credit, which has an effect on the economy. Uh, so those cycles kind of five to 10 years. But those long wave economic cycles, you know, those 50 to 60 year cycles are driven by technological revolution. Carlota Perez was one of the last economists latest economist to do a lot of work in this area. She built her work on uh, like Joseph Schumpeter and uh, then he built his work on conjurative. So there, there's a whole line or lineage of, of economists building on the idea that innovation drives long wave cycles. Carlota Perez in her great book goes and, and shows five technological revolutions in the last 200 years and kind of builds a framework for, for what happens within those long wave economic cycles. So there's kind of two phases and then two parts to each phase and something that happens in the middle. Yeah, it's really cool. And you tell the story of, you know, the dot-com bubble in the 2000s and, and how like this is really part of this larger innovation cycle of information technologies. I'm wondering, how would you describe the distinction you're drawing between this information economy and now this autonomous revolution that's coming? I think it's hard for a lot of us to, to sort of visualize what that might be. Yeah. So Dr. Perez still believes we're in the age of information and that we're at the turning point, which is that middle piece. So she doesn't necessarily agree um, with my interpretation. I believe we're at the mature phase of the age of information and that we start a new cycle. So just to step back and talk about the whole book's kind of thesis is that we have seen over the past decade or so innovation around automation. And that's been powerful, but it hasn't been transformational. It hasn't altered fundamentally how businesses operate. The last piece of the puzzle really was cryptocurrency. Uh, because it allows us to store, process, and transfer economic value without human you know, intervention. And so when you see the convergence of AI, IoT, like the Internet of Things and sensors, and robotics come together with cryptocurrency, we're going to be able to build autonomous operations. And that's just being able to operate and take real-time data, turn it into knowledge, and then act on it with economic actions, all autonomously. You know, autonomy is the ultimate competitive advantage. Why is that? Well, just imagine, just like uh, building SaaS or software as a service businesses, and just allowing that 24-7 nature of it versus having a lot of humans for customer service, let's say. Um, it's just, it's cheaper, better, faster. It's just part of that whole specialization and then improvement and optimization that happens within an economy. And so if you can run a business 24 seven with software, where you're getting in data, making decisions, and then making economic transactions and doing all that autonomously with software, you're going to be able to do it cheaper, better, faster than the human counterparts. And you didn't mention like fiat currency, but I'd like to just go back one second because th there was this point you brought up. You're like, look, like the United States isn't in a unique position. We've seen this happen many, many times before where essentially it's easier to increase the amount of fiat currency available than it is to 
sort of conjure up the political will to strengthen the currency. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and where we're at with our U.S. dollars right now? Sure. Um, I'll hit that. Um, let me just finish that one thought on. So we're having the, the age of autonomy where we're going through. And now this is really different and distinct than the age of information because the age of information was really about taking analog communications and bringing that digitally and then being able to communicate with one another. You know, it was about the internet. It was about email and web pages, right? This focus is about digitization and being able to take the world and describe it in software and then have the software somehow act autonomously. So, you know, web pages and the internet and email is great. It's being built upon by now AI trying to represent the entire world in software and then being able to act in that software in the world. So it's about digitization. And that is clear and distinct from what information, bringing information digitally. And so that's the distinction I see. Is there a basic example of a process like that that exists now? Well, let's see. I mean, yeah, anything that you do with uh, Uber, right? Uber has to then take the entire maps of the world, of all the streets and everything, right? and then bring it into software and then try to map where drivers and customers are and then you know use ai to optimize a route for it and then do all that and then it has actions that then are expressed back into the physical world in the form of drivers showing up at the right time to pick up a person right that's what digitization provides and then that's what autonomy provides now uh, we're going to be able to disintermediate uber right uber is a company that is doing this, we're going to be able to create software that disintermediates Uber. There's no need for Uber, the company, when we can have autonomous operations. That's the revolution you're talking about. That's the revolution I'm talking about. We still depend on Facebook. We still depend on USA. And you get no benefit from your own data and you get no benefit from like the difference now is we're going to be able to have a say by owning tokens and by having decentralized autonomous organizations and by having on-chain governance, you know, and by having communities, you're going to be able to have a say and incentives are aligned for users, for investors, for developers. All of our incentives will be in line through these crypto systems and these crypto networks. And so that's where the benefit is, is it really things are driven by incentives. And now we're going to be aligning incentives where in the world now incentives aren't aligned between Facebook and the community. You know, uh, incentives aren't aligned between Google and the community. What an incredible product this week. This episode is brought to you by Service Provider Pro, an agency dashboard and client portal software for productized services. Can you believe it? You know we're huge on productized services around here. This product is designed for those of you who run them at scale. So if you want to scale up your agency, you need a system for handling clients, payments, and projects. Service Provider Pro gives you that system together with a white-labeled client portal that makes your agency look professional, saves your clients time, and serves as a central source of truth for your team. Service Provider Pro is trusted by many TMBA listeners, including seven-figure agencies. This is a solution made specifically for selling and delivering your services at scale. So check them out. Check it out over at spp.co to learn more how it works. That's spp.co. Can I toss out like a dream scenario? I know we're jumping to the head to the end here, but... um, 
there's, you know, I, I remember like the early days of Kickstarter when people go on there and they say, oh, I'll sign, you know, the product for you and I'll send it to you and I'll do yeah. this. I'll fly out here if you do this. I could really imagine a world in which, you know, I decide that I want to start this new business and I put out a bunch of tokens that people invest in. It's like an IPO, but I'm doing it from my desk. And then they have like certain rights because they purchase those that are, you know, secured by their token. And maybe if they want to sell their share to somebody else, they can do so, but I might get a cut of that. And then the new person would, you know, have a vote in, in what we do. Is that future upon us? It could be. But for that to be realized, we're going to have to either update our regulation in the here in the U.S. and around the world, or we're going to have to fit tokens into the security structure, which would not be optimal because tokens really aren't securities. Um, but we're going to need to have that whole conversation. The part where we skirt into uh, regulations and the law is where you're raising money for then a cut of some enterprise. Right. And then you get some benefit of the enterprise. It's that raising of the money before something's built. It's that investment to get something built that ultimately makes that a security. And so we're going to have to fix that process or update the regulations or do something around that to hit that dream scenario that you're talking about. Do you think people doing this, you know, it's a transformative emotional experience to transfer a token to a wallet that you own and yes. then just carry around. It's crazy because yep. you're like, I could just get on an airplane right now like or whatever. And our folks that get into this stuff, are they going to bother with regulation? Do they need to? How it, it, It's very this big question mark in my mind. Like, How are governments going to get their fingers into this world? You know, I don't know how it's all going to play out. I will say, you know, the regulation exists, the SEC is out there and they're going to do enforcement actions. And so I don't think we can just brute force through that. You make a point, but ultimately that will have to come to a head in some form and have some form of resolution. And for me, that will be the turning point for this age of autonomy. So that'll be that middle point where we have to reconstitute the whole thing in a new way to make it productive for everybody. And so that's yet to come. And that's exciting to, to watch and see how that'll transform. But yes, we all want to see that, that vision, what you talk about, and, and have to have that to everybody to be able to participate. I think the laws that were meant to protect investors and protect people are now becoming handcuffs, right? Because only the rich now can benefit from these innovations. And, and that's not fair. And so we need to be able to have protections for investors, but everybody to be able to participate in, the, in these systems. And so, you know, that's the delicate balance to walk and to have innovation lead and then have regulation properly follow. And, and that's the dance. I did want to go back to your first question about fiat currency. Yeah. I mean, the idea that you brought up in the book was that this has happened many times before and that there's precedent for what the US is currently doing, which is printing quite a bit, because the political consequences of not doing so are dire. Yep. Um, and so it's easier to essentially kick the can down the road. Can you describe that process and how it's played out before? Yes. So this has happened in Babylon, in Greece, in Rome, in England, in the Netherlands, in France. And so what happens is we start with sound money that's backed by gold or that's a commodity-based money. Uh, we then have the government print or be responsible for the monetary system or the money system. In ancient times, they didn't necessarily have paper. That was more modern, uh, but they would have metals that would have an alloy or have a percentage of the precious metal and other metals in it. 
And so what would happen when the government was in charge of the money, ultimately they would start to deficit spend, spend more than they should, and then debase the currency. So back in the old days, in the Roman times or Greek times or you know, in England, they would start to uh, decrease the amount of precious metal, whether it was you know, silver or gold, in the coins. And so they would continue to do that. Then you know, people would only spend the bad money and keep the good money. So if, you know, if France had mostly pure gold and England was debasing their currency and only had 50% gold in, in their coins, people would want to be saving the, the French gold and spending the English coins that, that were debased. And so that would reduce the demand for the English coins. Those coins become worthless. And so that's happened many, many times before. And we're here again. Uh, when it doesn't cost anything to produce the money, when you can just hit a button and print a trillion dollars of, even though it's bank reserves, it's still, you know, increasing the money for free. That money, when it's ruled or governed by, by a government, uh, when it's managed by a government, it always comes down to a political decision. Deficit spending happens and then what's easier to debase the money or austerity, you know, ask people to, to balance the budget. And when the government owns the money, it always comes down to a political decision. And then it always is easier to print more money than to ask the people to spend less or to be austere or to balance the budget. That never happens. Nobody politically ever does the hard thing. And so we get to a point where it just looks easier to debase the money. And then we get into this problem again. Just occurred to me that might be one advantage of the Chinese system is that they can say austerity and they can't they don't lose power for have, having done so. Perhaps we'll see. Yeah, I mean, perhaps central control will help in this area. Then it has its whole problems of malinvestment, right? And what happens when governments that you know don't have the interest of the individual start to invest they start to have a lot of malinvestment and then what happens there so it's this whole dance we'll see but but we are at a place we've been for you know been in history what normally happens you know there's a, a, a couple of options i think there's three options you can continually have the central banks buy and buy up most all of the assets right right now the fed is buying up treasuries in the form of this process called quantitative easing. Um, I think they own something like 30% of all treasuries. So what is a treasury? In the right hand, they're giving a security or a bond. It's a, it's a, a security, a bond, a U.S. treasury saying, uh, we will give you interest payments for 10 years or 30 years or one year, depending on the duration of that bond. And it's a security, it's a financial instrument you can get somebody. And if you hold that financial instrument, you get interest payments. And so the Fed and the Treasury together work together to offer these uh, treasuries and then they can have money or print more bank reserves. Well, with one hand, the Fed is uh, selling treasuries or, you know, the Fed and the Treasury working together, selling treasuries and then buying treasuries with the left hand in this quantitative easing because they're manipulating the interest rates. And so they're buying up more and more of their own assets. This has happened in Japan. They ended up buying all or most of their currency. They ended up having to buy other bonds. And then they started to have to buy all of the Japanese equities, the stocks. And so in Japan, 
the central bank, the Bank of Japan, owns more than 70% of the Japanese stocks because they're trying to buy and buy up all these things to prop up their capital system. And so that continues until the fit, you know, the central bank owns everything and, and the money dies. That's the deflationary death spiral. That's one way. The other way is something like Weimar Germany, where you have inflation, high inflation, hyperinflation. Now that goes until inflation like Venezuela is at a thousand or 10,000%. You have, you know, billion dollar notes that can't buy even one egg and the money system dies. You have two more ways. One, the central banks do the perfect dance to debase the money, pay off all their old debts and then continue. But then at some point they're going to get into an issue again. And then the other way is just a complete reset. We say, okay, uh, we screwed up. We're not going to have credit money anymore. We're going back to a commodity money, a money backed by gold. And we're, it's a major repricing. And so what happens is gold goes from the free market right now. Gold's at, let's say $2,000 an ounce or something like that pops up to $12,000 an ounce. And now we have a repricing. We have this big event. Now we're dollar backed or something. Um, that's how it's happened in the past. One of those four ways, but really three ways to end it. But I think there might be a possibility of a new financial system that isn't necessarily just commodity backed. You know, it, it has forms of scarcity within it, but it's a multi-currency world. And we'll have to see how that potentially plays out. I don't know what that looks like, but um, I do think just going back to the gold standard or going back to commodity money probably isn't how this goes. So we'll see. You mentioned there's like a school of philosophy popping up around um, these measures that these unprecedented, sometimes unprecedented leash these governments are allowing themselves in terms of managing their own currencies. Could you talk about that school of philosophy? It seems like um, there's folks that basically think that we can do this indefinitely. Yeah. I mean, there, there's something called modern monetary theory. What are some of the tenets of that? Well, it's just that uh, we print as much money as we need. And the interoperation of, of how that happens, what modern monetary theory then ultimately wants to do is just remove the need to create that U.S. Treasury, remove the need to have a debt, just remove that and just continue on how we're doing it, but just don't print treasuries. And there's a lot of arguments to and from that, but I just ultimately think it comes down to the simple rule that you need your monetary system to reflect reality until until reality is that we don't have scarcity in the world, which could happen someday, right? Um, but until that day, if, if we have scarcity in the world, then we need our money system to somehow reflect that. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. In the meantime, you know, one of the thoughts, I guess, is like that government decrees are powerful enough, you know, to keep us in line. And I, I got to bring us back to, you know, the last financial crash which seems like such a perfect storm where the government did come in and decide that, hey, there's no scarcity in our banks yep. <laughs> and we're, we're going to keep going. And it's sort of this magic storm. You can't help but to tell the story that this is also right around the time Bitcoin appeared on the scene. It is. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that narrative and what hope Bitcoin has for people. Bitcoin came out of the, the last financial crisis of 2008-9. You know, um, it was somebody's answer to uh the the financial system and, and saying that expression and you know they wrote some notes in the initial 
blocks that were that were minted inside of Bitcoin. You know, it's one person or a group of people's idea of the answer. These credit systems can continue, but it takes force. It makes it takes the government to force by uh, law that you have to use something, and it, it requires the people to trust the government. But at some point, if people lose faith in the government, the force is no longer going to be effective. And so that does happen. So right now, the reason why this system is working is because there's force through legislation, through through laws that are forcing people to use dollars. And there's people trusting the government. But if that breaks down, then, you know, the US dollar or money systems in general can't work if they're just fiat or by decree. And so um, Bitcoin's idea is to bring back scarcity. And so what we're doing inside the Bitcoin community is, you know, Bitcoin is scarcity. Now we're going out and telling the story so that we can get acceptability, right? It goes back to those six characteristics of good money. If Bitcoin can increase the acceptability at a faster rate, then fiat can continue to battle its problems with scarcity, then Bitcoin or something like that with scarcity in it will win. Because again, scarcity is required to be good money. And so that's the race. I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got going on over there. Because of that, we've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, Many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022. And to help you do it, we've got three exciting options for you to explore. The first is our entirely new hiring platform with a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime. We've got a growing list of features there, including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications. We've also got our done for you service. If you're sick of sorting, assessing, and interviewing, you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right, a zero risk hiring option. If you don't really know about the long-term fit, or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors, we can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com slash remote recruiting. I don't know how to put a name to it, uh, Jake, but there's there's sort of this aha moment with a lot of crypto enthusiasts and there's like a, you know, before aha and after aha. And we, a lot of us have had that experience. I'm curious if you could describe what yours was. What, do you remember looking at uh, this technology and saying, wow, I kind of get it. Yeah. And what led to that? Mine wasn't seeing utopia, right? So I had seen Bitcoin in 2012. I think I, it was mentioned in a, a TV show I watched back then called The Good Wife. And so I, I had heard about Bitcoin in 2012 and I had followed it for a while. I had looked at the dark web. I, you know, my background was in cybersecurity. So I was interested in, could it truly be anonymous? 
Like, was Bitcoin anonymous? No, it's pseudonymous. Okay, could you really be anonymous? What's the distinction between anonymous and pseudonymous? Pseudonymous is just that my name and all my details are not published every time. There may be a link or a something that can identify some, you know, an entity, but it's not like I'm passing my name and address every time we do a transaction like a credit card. Anonymous is you do not know who I am, right? And there isn't that. Um, so the Tor browser, the dark web, that is pretty much anonymous. You can pretty much operate anonymously on that on that dark web. Uh, Bitcoin is not anonymous. Like you, you can track what money goes to whom. You just might not know who who that whom is. But ultimately, right. you could assign a person and a and something to that to that entity. But uh, but that's the distinction. And I had seen it um, on that that show, and then I kind of forgot about it for a couple of years. And then many things happened. Like there were several things that happened that should have just killed Bitcoin. But it was like the Terminator it kept on coming. It kept living. <laughs> and I'm like, this thing might be anti fragile. This idea of something that gains in disorder. And so it wasn't this utopian view of money. It was this view that, damn, this thing can't be killed. And this idea of that decentralization and the power of that and that architecture and that Bitcoin couldn't be killed that gave me the idea, okay, wow, this thing has an architecture and has a something different. Um, and then start to see how powerful and how important that is to then the application of a problem we have today, which is our money. Well, one of the other interesting things that I really got a kick out of in the book is how you dissected memes and you really took them like seriously, which was so cool because I've heard people, you know, we've all been accused of being a boomer in the past year. I have at least, and I'm curious, but you really like took it to task and dug into this concept of like, where are the emotion and ideas behind this, this idea of, okay, boomer, could you tell us a little bit about how you came up across this idea? And I thought that was really cool. Well, yeah. Okay. Boomer. I mean, it was definitely a meme in the crypto sphere and all around. Right. And it's just two words, you know, okay, boomer, but it really has a lot of meaning if, if you really get into it and, and it really captures that generational conflict between boomers and younger generations, particularly the millennials and, and maybe even younger. Um, to me, the Gen X is kind of in the middle, kind of on the sidelines, because we still get, uh, even if you're a Gen X, that's me. a lot of millennials and younger just say you're a, boom, you're a boomer, right? They don't make the distinction between boomers <laughs> and Gen X, right? So, um, but, it, but it's this idea that total concepts have flip-flopped over the last many decades, right? Literally, the, the definition of literally has completely flip-flopped in its meaning, right? Literally now means figuratively or metaphorically, right? Literally used to meant literally. If I say, you know, literally I'm dropping this cigarette lighter or whatever, a uh, candlelight lighter, you know, that literally happened, but that's not how we use literally anymore. We, we use it as metaphorically. The literal definition of literally has changed in the dictionary. It's these flip-flopping of, of definitions that have caused problems. I mean, savings are safe because, you know, the Fed and the government is playing mental gymnastics with the definition of money. Yes, the nominal value of $100 isn't changing in your savings account. Yes, you do have $100 still in your savings account. But 10 years later, do you still have the same purchasing power that you put in that savings account? Hell no. You have $100 that buys half what it did 
six years ago or whatever. And so your savings aren't safe. You know, the nominal value isn't changing, but what you really, what you care about is, does the purchasing power stay the same? Am I storing the value at the, at the same rate or better than when I put it in there? And the answer is no. It's occurring to me why this like emotionally affected me so much because I'm Gen X. And so you have all these categories. You say safe is a new risky, risky is a new safe. I grew up in the first set of values and I had to like kind of get to the second set. And sometimes you meet young people who assume the new values, which is incredibly cool. I actually find myself, you know, being happy for them. Right. This, that's better. If you learned it the old way and now you're still relating, that's really the scary part is when, when you have, you know, the behavior was modeled to you one way, the definitions have changed, yet you haven't unlearned what you learned or related to it new. Like I'll like bake in my values of like coolness and anti-corporatism into like how I run my social media accounts, whereas a, a millennial just knows the game. Like they're yeah. just like, no, we're just trying to get attention for this. Like we're totally playing this situation. Right. I'm like, I'm being like the cool slacker gen, like let's not sell out kind right. of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> I thought that was just really cool. And, and they're kicking your ass. Totally. 100%. <laughs> they're playing the game to an optimum. You're not even in, this is chess and checkers, you know? I mean, it's not the same. So they're going to win that because they really, you know, learned and are operating in that that new way that new system so you know illiteracy really isn't you know another great author came up to this but it, you know illiteracy isn't about being able to read it's going to be about the ability to learn and unlearn things because so much is happening so fast and changing so much that you know it's the ability to learn and unlearn that will become important in the future you know we talk uh, on this podcast a lot about you know what books whisper you know, there's like things that books explicitly tell you, but then you drop the book and you get this idea from it and you don't know where it came from. And I think one of the things, you know, I think you say it explicitly a few times, but you know, you put down the book and you're like investing in automation, uh, especially relative to the financial system, decentralization, tokens, cryptocurrencies is a generational opportunity to build wealth. That's sort of what I walk with. And it seems to be the case that you're laying out. Do you believe that to be true? And how might one go about it? I think the important thing is to, yeah, start to understand that and really see that as a, a whole idea. And then being able to invest in uh, crypto assets or in, you know, this new technology, this new innovation and take advantage of it. Um, you know, the, we're at the early cycle of an adoption curve, just like the early days of the internet. And there's really a chance to have outsized returns here. And so, uh, we're just lucky to be at this stage of an adoption cycle. And if you can be one of those few people that understand it a little bit faster than your neighbor, you're going to be able to, to benefit. And so that's what I'm out here like advocating and educating because the faster you can get an understanding of why this is so and to be able to capitalize on this innovation, you know, the better off you're going to be in the future. And that's important. What are the special concerns that, you know, you have to make on behalf of your clients investing in these technologies. I'm specifically thinking around security, like how important is self-custody versus, you know, using exchanges for your enterprise? Yeah. I mean, security is a huge thing. Security, regulations, those are all big things. Getting, being on top of the latest and the trends and what are good investment themes, learning technologies. I mean, this whole thing, it's like, you know, uh, PhD level stuff and so much is coming out every day and just to stay on top of all of that. You know, and to be in the front, the front running of that, um, all that's important. And it's such a big 
thing that, it, you know, it, it takes a lot to be, to be on it full time. To me, it's not like stocks or a mature system that um, already has, has competition so much in it that, um, you know, that things are indexed and there's so much information in those systems. You know, there's such an asymmetry and in information in these new uh, capital systems that, um, that I think active management can, can do well. And it just, yeah, you have to worry about security and regulation and, and many things because this is so new. Jake, one of the there's this term called the flippening, mm-hmm. and I think what it means is when people have more of their net worth into crypto than into traditional assets. And uh, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but um, one thing I've noticed in my friendship group is that like this is happening often, and people are like really comfortable with mm-hmm. it all of a sudden, like in the last three four years. Yeah, and I'm curious as to do you think that that is foolish? Um, for someone who is a young multimillionaire that they hold it in crypto? Yeah. Or do you think that this is the future? Well, the flipping originally is the idea of Ethereum having a greater market cap than Bitcoin. Um, so that's the original flipping. Now it's used in several different areas. I think people should have a diversified total portfolio, you know, still have stocks and bonds and real estate and commodities and crypto. I, I just think they need to add crypto to it. And so, um, you know, and have cash and have, you know, many and gold and many things right in, in a total portfolio. And the goal is to have financial assets that generate uh, capital appreciation and income on your behalf. And so I think it should be added to a portfolio. I don't think everything should be all crypto. Um, so we're looking for diversification. One more question yeah. for you. Um, have you read Nassim Taleb's uh, critique of Bitcoin? I'm curious if you have and if you had any thoughts on it. I have. The best part of his argument, in my opinion, is that it takes energy and work to continue the system, right? If you have gold, you can sit it down. Nothing has to happen in the world and come back and then spend the gold. And so I think that's the crux and something important about his, his argument and something to be considered and, and looked at. If that is true, that can be then managed in other ways by changing consensus mechanisms and other things. He has many other points. I think that is the only part of his argument that I think we all need to look at. That, that is a good, interesting um, uh, idea that the Bitcoin system takes perpetual energy to operate. And can you have your monetary system built on top of something that takes perpetual energy to, to administer? A lot of us are going home for the holidays, you know, and we're really big crypto enthusiasts. Um, and we're going to get asked by our uncles and our aunts about whether they should invest in crypto or not, or what's going on with it. And what would you say? What do you say in those situations when people ask you about it um, to someone who's not familiar with the technology? What kind of message do you send them? The percentage of crypto assets in your total portfolio is directly related to the amount of books you've read, right? So education is the most important you need to understand it first right starting with a small book like the little bitcoin book which is something like 74 pages is a good place to start uh my book is a good place to start uh delving into a bigger book like the bitcoin standard is good and so i think articles podcasts and really understanding what's going on is important first and then you know playing with it and and just starting with with small amounts of money that you can afford to lose. 
as you understand and, and grow your understanding, more and more of your assets can be there because more and more conviction is there. And, you know, you'll be, you'll be able to responsibly uh, manage that, that capital allocation, that, that money that you've assigned or invested. And so I think the most important thing is in education. And I hope everybody picks up a book or a podcast or reads and really has a commitment to their own education around crypto because it is transformational. It's here to stay and it's going to make a huge difference in the world. A big shout out to Jake Ryan for dropping by the show. Do check out this wonderful book. It's called Crypto Asset Investing in the Age of Autonomy. And his hedge fund is over at tradecraft.capital. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this one and your ideas about crypto. I got to be honest here, Ian. Um, part of me, as such a heavy investor in crypto, is simply trying to find narratives out there to build confidence in that investment, right? Like that, you know, everybody says, like, it's very volatile. Uh, it's new. It could all go away overnight. Um, Tether is a scam. Like, all, there's, you know, Nassim Taleb said crypto isn't a currency. You know, there's very real and, and strong critiques about crypto. And as a holder, uh, you know, I want to expose myself to those critiques, but also I want to buttress my, the narrative in my head that got me into it in the first place. And there is a, a confidence you get from not only listening to someone like Jake, who's so smart, but hearing in the historical narrative and why um, a lot of these things do feel inevitable. Like, for example, you can go back to 1998 and you can look at all these startups that were failing and you can say, man, it's so volatile, you know? But the internet, the underlying idea of the innovation of the internet was more or less undeniable. And I feel like we're sort of at that moment with cryptocurrencies where, okay, maybe these were, aren't the ones we have in 10 years, but really you think cryptocurrency is going away? And so uh, anyway, that's kind of uh, where I'm at with this one. <laughs> yeah, totally. It can totally relate to that, which is like you have an idea about something or in your case, like you have a lot of skin in the game and you're trying to figure out like, how can I feel good about this? Like, how yeah. can I, how can I feel like other people are in this with me? And I think that the truth of crypto is like a lot of people have a lot to win by publishing things about crypto. Um, a lot of these people are selling products in the crypto space. So there's a lot of that going on, but then there's also like a lot of people that are just like, Hey, like these are the reasons why this is going to become important. I guess it's hard to untangle the two and maybe it's not necessary at this point to like figure out who's got a lot of skin in the game and like who's shilling products. But it's early days, man. It feels like the internet back in the late nineties, it feels like, uh, certainly there's going to be a lot of disruption. And I think like the disruption with crypto is going to be like nation states. It's not going to be just like, uh, you know, we buy all of our products from uh, a different country, but everything kind of looks the same except for the money flows a little different. Like major disruptions could be taking place. Yeah, it's probably going to be the case that there's going to be more change in the next 20 years, not less. So that's it for this week. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.